New Year. Congratulations, you made it. After all of your ringing in the new year and kids up late with noisemakers and all of your good intentions to get up early and run every day this year, I had a private wager with myself that I would be preaching to an empty theater, and so I'm, I'm glad to have lost that bet. Last Sunday, we came together to celebrate the Incarnation on Christmas morning, and we walked through the entire sweep of redemptive history in one shot, looking at Satan's hatred and antagonism toward Jesus and the people of God. And we're going to do it again this morning. We're just going to do it one chapter later in Revelation 13. Little Christians, our passage this morning tells us again that there is a war going on between the Lord and sin. So here's what I want you to look for. What is our role in it? Do we fight in this war? And if so, how? How do we fight in a war like this? Now, for the sake of context, we're going to start reading a couple of verses earlier than is printed in your bulletin. We'll pick up in 1217 and then read all the way through chapter 13. This is the unsettling portrayal of the good news of Jesus in the vision that he gave to his apostle John to give to us as his church. Revelation 1217 through chapter 13. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. He stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. It was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. All who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, 
to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. You join me as we pray. Jesus, you have given us this vision through your Apostle John. And we admit readily that it confuses and terrifies us. But we trust that you have given it to us for our good. And in the midst of these startling images and declarations, would you show us the good news again? You became flesh and lived among us. And one day you will make your dwelling among your people again. So train our hearts to hold on to your good news. Train our weak and fickle hearts to find our only real comfort there. Because we can find it nowhere else. We ask all of these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. This passage is lost on us. And let me be clear, I don't mean just a little bit. This passage is all but completely lost on us. Because we don't understand the imagery of it at all. There's a lot of imagery to be sure. And I'll tell you up front, I'm not going to unpack every image in the passage. I'm not going to satisfy every curiosity you have. But the passage is lost on us primarily because beasts are not things that we fear. When we were kids, our parents took us to zoos so that we could watch wild beasts sleep in a cage. Or maybe you went to a circus so you could watch them dance in costume. And when you're older, some of us pay to watch men in sequin tights crack whips and make them jump through hoops and Vegas acts. And any other time you want, you can watch them behind the safety of a camera lens on basic cable. But unlike the Christians who first read the words of this vision, none of us are afraid that government agents are going to storm in here this morning and drag us to a coliseum so they can threaten feeding us to wild beasts if we refuse to disown Christ and swear sole allegiance to Caesar. Wild beasts are things that entertain and educate us. They don't tear us limb from limb for sport before they digest us. At home, we forward emails around trying to figure out what political figure's name can be converted mathematically to total 666. And we sit comfortably in theater seats, baffled, at what kind of animal this could have looked like in John's vision with all of his mismatched body, feet, and face. But when the vision was read out loud in those first churches, I imagine very literally there were several people who wet their tunics. Because they weren't gripped with curiosity. They didn't think about email forwards. It was much more vivid than that. They knew there was a good chance that they would be martyred. And they imagined what it would be like to test all of your hope at once as you cry out to Jesus in that last moment when iron teeth sink into your legs, shoulder, and neck. And if you can put yourself in that place, if you can sit in that seat this morning, then that will help you start to read it correctly. Once you do that, you have to read this chapter in the context 
You have to read it for what it is. It's the continuation of the dragon and child story that we saw last week. We read last week in chapter 12 this vision that Jesus gave John so that he could give it to us. And the whole book reads a little like that, like one long nightmare. It's never without hope. And the overall message is that Jesus does win in the end. But all along the way, it actually is supposed to be terrifying. The whole book comes out in this long string of shorter visions. So remember what takes place in chapter 12. There was the dragon hoping to devour the child, making war in heaven, pursuing the woman into the wilderness, trying to catch her children and being frustrated at every turn. Not to make too light of it, but it kind of reminds me of the boxing scene from Cool Hand Luke. Remember in the movie that Luke, played by Paul Newman, goes into prison for cutting the heads off parking meters. And while he's there, he charms everyone with his stubbornness, even his enemies. The first time you really get to see it is that boxing scene early in the movie when Luke fights George Kennedy's character. George Kennedy's character has earned himself the sophisticated nickname of Dragline. Kennedy outweighed Newman by what looked about 80 pounds. So the boxing was pretty predictable. Every time that Luke moved in, Dragline would land one of those thuds, those clumsy blows, and knock him to the ground. But Luke kept getting up. No matter how hard he got hit, no matter how much blood was drawn, he stood back up every time. And eventually, Dragline gave up. Later that night, you find out that Luke's refusal to quit has actually endeared him to everyone. It's won him the respect and friendship of everyone in the prison, especially the guy who hated him most. Reading chapter 12 is a little like that. It's a little like watching the boxing match. Nothing the dragon does successfully knocks out the church, but this time it doesn't win us any respect. He never lets up. He only gets angrier. He only gets more tenacious. And as we approach chapter 13, he's furious. So what we see here is him enlisting help. Now, while the vision of chapter 13 follows the one in 12, the events they represent are not later historically. In fact, they're simultaneous. That sounds a little odd. Even my kids know how to tell a story and listen to a story in order. So give me a chance and let me explain. All the time references that you see throughout both passages, the woman nourished for 1,260 days or three and a half years or the 42 months of tyranny from the beast, they're all roughly equivalent periods of time. And the point is that these things aren't sequential. These are snapshots of redemptive history told on top of each other. The 1,260 days, the 42 months, the three and a half years, they're all the same period of time. It's redemptive history from the exclusion and expulsion from Eden all the way up to the very edge of the new creation. But then it's told in these sort of broad sweeps over and over and over through John's vision. And every time you get it from a little bit different perspective, So through the bulk of 12, Jesus showed John the dragon persecuting God's people all together, pictured collectively as that singular woman. 
And then there at the end, he turned his attention, like we read this morning, to to her plural offspring. So in the beginning, we see the dragon's frustrated efforts to destroy God's people as a whole. But then the shift is supposed to move us to see the dragon's war against individual members of the church. If he can't take us on altogether, then he'll separate out the weak ones. He'll hunt us down individually. That's his plan. Or to say it more concretely, what we see in most of 12 is what Jesus promised, that he would establish the church and the gates of hell would not prevail against her as a whole. What we see in 13 is Satan demanding from Jesus that he be allowed to sift us like wheat as individual disciples along with Peter. And the faithfulness we see through the chapter is Jesus praying for us individually that our faith wouldn't fail. So you have the story of 12, and it ends with the dragon frustrated and panting from all his wasted effort. You see him standing there on the sand of the sea, and 13 begins with the dragon standing there, summoning out of the sea this beastly, seven-headed, ten-horned, leopard, bear, lion thing. And now this creature jogs John's memory. But it's not scenes from a Paul Newman movie. It's something he's read in Daniel. The vision he gets is a spin on the vision that Jesus gave to Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel saw a collection of beasts. And the first three were like a lion and a bear and a leopard. What he was supposed to see was the conquest of one dynasty after another, after another, after another, over all the earth. Now Jesus is putting all of those things together for John. All of those dynasties pictured together at once. All the worldly empires of history in view at the same time. It's terrifying, and what we find out is that Satan has commissioned them together, given them his authority, and asked them to join his war on God's people. And so that's exactly what they do. Even though the state, the empires are in view here, this isn't John's manifesto for anarchy. I want to be clear, Jesus and John are not anti-government. Remember that Jesus has a kingdom and he rules over it in his grace. But here the world's kingdoms are seen for what they are at their worst. Powerful collections of the Lord's enemy. Fallen humanity under the power of the dragon. Promising care and hope for their subjects in exchange for unrivaled devotion and worship. So that first beast who survives the mortal wound, that first beast is Satan's seemingly invincible empire in this world. And the second is his minister of false religion. Now before we go any further, I'm going to go ahead and disappoint you up front. I'll give you my take on 666 at the end of the passage. No individual's name actually adds up to be 666. So put away your pens. It's not Obama, it's not Bush, it's not Jimmy Carter, it's not Hitler or Stalin or the Pope. The second beast is the minister of false religion in general across all of history, across all of humanity as a whole, and that's why it's the number of a man. The second beast preaches with the authority of the dragon and the first beast. He crafts idols and he calls for false worship. 
He deceives with his own signs and wonders. We even see him producing knockoffs. We see him copying Elijah's fire from heaven. And while the first beast persecuted Christians mainly by applying force and violence, this second beast learns how to persecute by withholding. You have to belong to him. You have to be one of his worshipers and wear his mark, his pseudo-baptism, if you're going to participate fully under the dragon's regime. Without it, you can't buy or sell what you need. And so he preaches to you over and over, you have to have him. You have to bow down. You have to kiss his ring and worship him. And that probably feels a little more like the persecution that we're used to. Don't get me wrong, Christians have been imprisoned and tortured and martyred in different places throughout history, and we currently are in some countries. But that doesn't happen to us right here, right now. That kind of persecution is not the only way the dragon has devised to harass Christians. There are times that we're we're shunned socially and commercially, Sometimes our faith in in a foolish gospel of a crucified carpenter calls our intellect and our professional reputation into serious question. I mean, seriously, how could you or any other thinking person believe such narrow, antiquated dogma? How do you function with such archaic pictures of morality and gender roles and sex? Don't you know what kind of atrocities your religion has caused? How could you possibly be a part of that and sleep at night? If all of those were lost on you, if none of those registered, just take a second for me and imagine what it would look like this week to strike up a conversation with unbelieving friends at school or at work about the sermons we've had the last two weeks. What would it be like? How far would your stock plummet with them when you tell them the last two weeks at church you've heard sermons about a dragon and a seven-headed beast? How much credibility are you going to buy back for yourself when you explain, no, 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 it's just biblical metaphor. It was really about Satan out to get us. But Jesus says it's going to be okay. How honorable is that where you live? There are times that it feels like the gospel, this gospel, gets you into that mess. And that retreat or isolation or maybe silence. Keep your head down. Do your work. Don't say anything. That's the best answer. If they don't want us, we'll just play with ourselves quietly. That's a horrible option. That kind of thinking misunderstands the grounds on which the war is fought. And what Jesus really means to do in it. In the midst of it, it may look like we're fighting on the dragon's turf, but we're not. He's fighting against the Lord of all creation and His church in His creation. And the vision that Jesus gives to John is clear about how it's fought. Throughout Revelation, but especially in chapters 11 to 13, Jesus is very clear that the primary... But very unexpected, very seemingly weak weapon for his war is the mouth. 
In chapters 1 and 2, John sees Jesus with a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And Jesus' promise that he will make war on heresy in his church with the sword that proceeds out of his mouth. In chapter 11, the, Lord, the Lord's prophets afflict and defend themselves against all persecutors with the fiery word that pours out of their mouth. In chapter 12, the dragon fought with accusations and a flood of blasphemy that he poured out of his mouth. And the earth came to our aid by opening its mouth and swallowing up the flood. And the saints fought back and defended themselves with the word of their testimony in the gospel. Now throughout chapter 13, we have this kind of weird obsession with the beast and its mouth. It has a mouth like a lion's mouth, a mouth that utters arrogant and blasphemous words, opening its mouth to blaspheme God and His people we have the second beast who's given a dragon's mouth so that he can speak and deceive. Now it's a little clearer. In the midst of all of this odd imagery, what we have is a war of words. This isn't a war being fought with swords and cannons. It's Jesus and his gospel against all others. All other saviors, all other kingdoms, and all other gospels. He's vivid about it like this for a reason. The fight feels like all hell has broken loose. It feels like that because it has. Hell is after the church and all of her sons and all of her daughters. And you fight. You fight with the only word that you have, the only word of good news that there has ever been. It's the gospel word about the word made flesh. When you run up against the dragon or his beast or his prophet or any other members of their empire, you fight back by answering with the gospel. And so this is very good news, but the simplicity actually makes it difficult for us. I don't like simplicity and you don't like it either. We want tricks. I want surefire gimmicks. Teach me the moves. In His goodness, Jesus never gives you any. He's already told you in verses 9 and 10, whether Satan's sifting comes for you through captivity or violence, or whether it's subtle and it comes through ridicule and withholding. Jesus cries out in verses 9 and 10, Here is the call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Believe the gospel. Preach it to yourself and preach it to those who come after you. When they shame you with accusation, you answer back with the gospel. I belong to the Lamb and He has already taken my shame for me. When they come for your heart and the hearts of your wife and your children, you answer back with the gospel. We belong to the one who hung on a cross and bought us and our children after us and you can't have us because we're not yours to have. when they try to call you back to your sin, when they come quietly and subtly and tell you to remember how familiar, how comfortable it felt, you answer with the gospel. Jesus rose for us. and He gave us new and deeper and better and more substantial life in Himself. And we need no others. 
And when they distribute their propaganda dressed up like one of us to offer you the tricks and the gimmicks that our hearts love but that crowd out and replace the gospel, those tricks that promise quicker, easier hope, you fight back the same way. You answer by believing the good but narrow news that there's salvation and real hope in Jesus and no other. When Kara was younger, and her parents may not know this, when Kara was younger, much, much younger, she learned what it meant to give someone the finger. And she wanted to use it so badly. But like all good Christian kids in public school, she knew what it was and knew it was wrong. You can't just go around doing that to people. So Kara, being Kara, found a loophole. You can't give the finger to people, but you can give it to the devil. So she would walk around school, very young. She would walk around school with her middle finger down at her side, thinking to herself, that's right, devil, take that. No one can see it. I'm not allowed to do it to anyone else, but this is for you. You know, it seems a little juvenile. I mean, the only way that I'm actually able to tell you the story is that she's working in worship training down the hall. (laughs) And she won't hear me say this probably ever unless she listens to it later on this week. But you know what? That wasn't a bad expression of elementary school faith. That's Jesus and his gospel against all others. And this was a five-year-old way of saying that devotion to this Savior means rejecting all of his enemies, loving him and hating them. You and I aren't five. So when you reject them, don't settle for a hidden hand gesture. Fight out in the open, but do it with words. Do it with the words of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus, the word made flesh for us. Here's the call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Amen. Lord Jesus, you are the word made flesh for us. You have given us your holy fight against sin. To be fought and won through the something thing that seems so weak, so foolish, things like faith and preaching. But our faith and our preaching aren't weak when they rest in your strength. Our insecure hearts love gimmicks and tricks, and in your goodness you give us none of these. You only give us the simple, seemingly foolish gospel of your incarnation. Your living in our flesh, your suffering under our curse, your tasting of our death, and your resurrection bringing us your life. Your resurrection that promises us resurrection of our own. These are the words you've given us for the fight.
The fight is difficult. The fight is long. The fight is won by your grace. So we ask that you would confirm your gospel in us again this morning. Confirm it for us as we eat and drink your feast of grace at the table. Nourish and fill our flesh with your good news. Let us cling to you and find our hope in you and in no other. We ask that you do these things for us in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.